Engaging presentations on the most urgent problem of our day and what you can do about it. Now, the End Abortion Podcast by Priests for Life. Well, good morning, friends. This is Father Frank Pavone coming to you live on the morning of uh, Thursday, the 4th of May. Thanks for joining me at this early hour. And we're going to talk about some important things. I want you to let, want to let you know first, of course, this is the National Day of Prayer. Uh, so we'll pray and, and we'll pray for you throughout the day, too, on your comments throughout this broadcast, aside from the Supreme Court and abortion-related things we're going to discuss. Feel free to leave me your prayer intentions. I want to know how I can pray for you and how we all can pray for each other. The National Day of Prayer uh, is marked by prayer events at various uh, state capitals and government buildings. It's prayer for the nation. It's prayer for the people who are elected and appointed uh, to govern and uh, prayer that they will govern with the attitude of service. It's an attitude Jesus explained when he said, among the Gentiles, those in authority lord it over the people. They, the great ones make their authority felt. But he said, it's not to be that way with you. The greatest are the servants. We, uh, those who may exercise government office or we who have any kind of uh, authority, Nobody owns another human being. Nobody is Lord over another human being. Because Jesus is Lord and because our rights are all uh, given to us by God himself, this is what makes us all equal. And therefore, governance among human beings is service. That's the only proper way of understanding authority. So as we pray for the nation, as, as the National Day of Prayer occurs and people come together in Big cities and small towns and villages, at, at, uh, at capitals, at city hall buildings, and anywhere in between. Let's pray for that. Let's pray that voters in this year's midterm elections will take account of a very simple question. What kind of authority does the candidate think we're giving to him or her when we elect them? What kind of authority? That's a limited authority. It's an authority ultimately defined by service. So it's the National Day of Prayer. And last night I was with some great people down at Mar-a-Lago for uh, a uh, film uh, release by Dinesh D'Souza, a film called 2,000 Mules, interesting in and of itself. We're going to have him on uh, for a conversation about that. But uh, I was with President Trump, was able to greet him uh, last night uh, with Mayor Rudy Giuliani, uh, Dan Bongino, Seb Gorka, Charlie Kirk, uh, these were some of the people, uh, Ralph Reed, uh, Eric Metaxas. I was with all of them last night speaking uh, uh, and uh, conversing about the things going on, including the things going on in the Supreme Court, which I wanted to share with you about in a little bit more detail. But before we do that, let's turn uh, to the Lord in prayer. In the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, we thank you for this new day. We thank you for faith. We thank you for the power of prayer. We thank you for hearing the needs uh, that each one of us and our families may have and uh, giving us the confidence that in your love you respond to those needs. 
Thank you, Lord, for great people in our midst who articulate your truth, who rally the troops, who encourage us, who lead us. Uh, thank you, Lord God, for the people that are part of this great America First movement that does not look down on the rest of the world, but rather seeks to serve the rest of the world and in your name and for the good of your kingdom. We ask you to pray, uh, we ask you to bless, Lord, uh, as we pray the Supreme Court and all the justices on it. Let them do their work undeterred by pressure, unhindered by fear, uh, and, and with clear minds, let them uphold the Constitution, and especially, Lord, as it regards the issue of abortion. Let them uh, decide on this Dobbs case in such a way that respects the fact, the undeniable fact, that abortion and a right to abortion are nowhere in the Constitution or in the laws and history of our nation. Bless us as we speak up for life and as we do and seek to do your will. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I see some comments coming in, and uh, thank you, uh, Brad, from Australia. What a blessing I have been to your country. It's been a while, but I've been there uh, all across the country speaking, and have, well, just what, what a warm welcome I received. And as you mentioned, you are not Christian. Uh, but uh, you love my uh, thoughts. Well, we love having you. We love having people with us from all diverse backgrounds, and uh, we, we, we trust that the things we say are not only respectful of that fact, uh, but that they do uh, uh, help in, in one or another way to make some sense out of the things going on in our world and in our, in our country. Uh, and in our countries. So God bless Australia. God bless you. Uh, God bless uh, the movement for, for freedom. And uh, we are with you. We are united with you. Uh, let me know where you're from, brothers and sisters. I can see the comments right a little bit off to my side here. And uh, again, it's good to be with you this morning. So this is the opinion. My papers are a little bit uh, worn already. But this is the draft opinion that was leaked from the Supreme Court. Justice Samuel Alito authored it as a draft decision in the Dobbs case. We've been talking about this case for a year now, and uh, last May uh, it was accepted by the Supreme Court and been making its way up through the federal court system. And it is a decision de dealing with abortion, dealing with the fundamental question as to whether there's a right to abortion in our Constitution, and uh, dealing with a law from Mississippi that kind of pushed back against the courts. Okay, this law that was passed back in uh, 2018 said, we're going to protect babies in the womb starting at 15 weeks. Now, that's a, that's a, good, time, that's a good amount of time into the pregnancy, right? 15 weeks. So even many who think that uh, people should have the right to choose to have an abortion, which, of course, we vigorously disagree with that, but even those who, who, who think that they should have that right, many of them believe, well, you know, 15 weeks is, is a good amount of time to, to make a decision. It's a good amount of time to make a decision. You know, why not have the, the right to choose, and then at that point, cut it off. At that point, it's enough is enough. Because that baby, of course, is developing more and more. Now, some people on the other side will say, oh, but some circumstances are such that uh, the woman uh, 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 can't make a decision that soon. Maybe she's in denial about her pregnancy. Maybe some problem arises later, a relationship breaks up after, after 15 weeks. Sure, they can give you a litany of reasons why 
they believe that abortion should be allowed even after 15 weeks. But then again, I can come back and give you a litany of reasons why. Things change after the baby is born that make the mother think that she can no longer raise that child. So what does that mean? That she should have the right to choose to kill the newborn child? At a certain point, the fact of the matter is that the right to life takes precedence over the right to choose. Now, we say it always does. But when pe if people want to start drawing lines and saying, well, how much time should it be? And the other side wants to say, oh, there could be reasons. There are reasons to have late-term abortions. Fine. There's also reasons that people can bring forward, wrong as they are, to kill the baby after birth. Don't you draw the line there? Somebody's got to draw the line somewhere. So how is this and why is this pushing against the court if Mississippi says we're going to draw the line at 15 weeks? And line drawing, as we're going to uh, talk about a little more in a moment, is specifically a legislative task. That's for lawmakers to do. You draw policy lines. This behavior is permitted up to this point, and in these circumstances, this isn't. Policy line drawing is the job of lawmakers, not of courts. Courts are simply supposed to be judging disputes and whether things line up with the Constitution and so forth. But why is drawing a line at 15 weeks pushing against the court? Well, because in the United States, thanks to the Roe v. Wade decision that came down in 1973, the courts have been saying for 50 years now, almost, January will be 50 years, that you can't protect babies in the womb prior to viability. Now, viability, that's a whole discussion in and of itself. It's not so much a, a line as a prediction, and it depends on many factors other than time. But granting all that, the line of viability, these days, medically speaking, is more like 22 weeks than the 28 weeks that Roe v. Wade was talking about. But be that as it may, 15 weeks is obviously much sooner than that. And that's the sense in which Mississippi pushed back against the court. Say, no, we want to protect our unborn children. So we're going to do it at 15 weeks. Okay. Why, he, right here in Florida, by the way, Governor DeSantis just signed a similar bill. I was there with him together with Janet Morana, our executive director, for the bill signing that took place on April the 14th. That'll go into effect in July, Fifth, protecting babies at 15 weeks. So the other side, of course, challenged this. The courts blocked the law and said, well, it's before viability. They didn't pay attention to any of the reasons why the legislators passed this law, like the, 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 the developments in science that help us to know the baby even better and other developments in the law and in the culture that make it much, much um, uh, less of a, of a burden for pregnant moms, especially if they are alone, to have that child. There's many, many more provisions in the law these days that protect them anti-discrimination laws, for example, for pregnant women, and uh, family leave and, and, and insurance, paid leave, insurance coverage, um, opportunities for employment and education online that you can do at home while raising a child. There's so many different things that are uh, in place now that were not in place at the time Roe was decided. The pregnancy centers, for example, that outnumber the abortion facilities by about four to one. So many different changes have occurred. Now, the point is, they paid no attention to that, and they simply said, well, it's before viability, therefore it's not constitutional. And that's the question the Supreme Court agreed to take up. Does the fact that it's before viability, that you want to protect these babies, does that 
automatically and always make it unconstitutional? That's the question they took up. Because remember, when we talk about Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton, two decisions issued together in 1973, they, at the core of those decisions, are saying, no, you can't protect babies that early. All right, let's look at what this leaked. And by the way, the fact it was leaked is bad. It's a breach of protocol of the, of the highest order of the, of the confidentiality of the court. But it's no big surprise to me that it was the abortion issue that caused a breach like this. The supporters and promoters of abortion. And we're not talking about average citizens who say, hey, yeah, maybe it's a good idea for people to have this choice. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the hardcore pushers of abortion in our, in our society. They'll stop at nothing. They don't care about protocol, confidentiality, law and order, uh, due process, uh, fairness. They, they, don't, they, they don't care about truth. As a matter of fact, if you think about it this way, if you can uh, cut the head off a living baby, you can do anything. If you don't care about the right of a child that you're about to tear apart, you don't care about anything. So it's no surprise that it's on the abortion issue that they violated the confidentiality of the court. Chief Justice Roberts did confirm this is real. Okay, nobody didn't, this is not a forged document. Nobody made it up. It's an authentic leak of an authentic opinion. This opinion grants everything that we were asking for from the court. Because Mississippi asked two distinct things. One, uphold our law. Tell us, tell the world, it is constitutional to protect babies at 15 weeks. And secondly, by the way, you got to reverse Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey altogether because those decisions just don't work. Those decisions just don't reflect what the Constitution means. This decision does both of those things. It upholds the Mississippi law, and it throws out completely. It doesn't just modify, doesn't just weaken, doesn't just reverse implicitly. It explicitly and totally reverses, wipes clear from the judicial landscape the Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey decisions. Planned Parenthood v. Casey came out almost 20 years after Roe, reaffirming it, but I put that in quotation marks because they didn't really um, uh, uh, celebrate Roe or, or, or enthusiastically endorse its, its uh, reasoning. They just said, well, it's been around a long time, you know, we're not going to change it now. This opinion goes into the reasons why, even though it's been around a long time, it needs to be changed. Let's talk about what this decision says. First of all, Justice Alito points out, hey, for the longest time after our Constitution, the citizens decided on questions like abortion. The citizens decided on the policy, on the line drawing, as we were saying before, between what's legal and what's not legal. It's a citizen's responsibility through our elected lawmakers, through the lawmaking process. Isn't that what you want? Don't you want to have a say in the laws that under which you and your, and your families have to live? Of course you want to say. You have a say. That's why we have elections. That's why elections are so frequent. That's why we can communicate and should, indeed should be communicating with our lawmakers. Justice Alito said the citizens have decided this. 
And he pointed out only in the latter 20th century. So at the time of Roe v. Wade, it was handed down in 1973. It was argued in the, the, a couple of years before that. In the late 60s, things started to change with certain states with abortion laws. He said, not until that time in our history was there a claim that abortion was a constitutional right in American law. And he says in, in the statement, in the, in the opinion, at, at, no, at no time, he says, and then he says, has two sentences that follow after that. Zero, period, none, period. He really emphasizes this point. And he goes through the history to show that never in our country did we have this claim that abortion is a constitutional right until Roe v. Wade rolled around in the 1970s. Well, then how can you claim it's a constitutional right? It's nowhere in the text of the Constitution. I mean, that's not hard to verify. Just read it. Search for the word. It's not there. And it's nowhere... See, sometimes people will claim that a right is a constitutional right, but it, it's not explicitly mentioned in the Constitution. Well, in those cases, what you have to show is that it's rooted in the history and traditions of the country. So Justice Alito takes the time to go back and see whether there is any evidence of it being rooted in the history of the country. And what he finds, and what he reminds us of, is that the common law that we inherited from England prohibited abortion, looked at it as something wrong, and that as laws got codified in the 1800s, state after state was prohibiting abortion, not for the reasons that Roe v. Wade erroneously indicated that, oh, well, they're trying to protect the, the health of the, of, the, of the woman. No, these laws were enacted to protect human life, not to protect women from risky surgery, because every surgery has risks, but it was only the ones, it was only these laws against abortion that treated it as criminal behavior. Why would it be criminal? Because it's, it's aimed, as courts and legislators explicitly told us, it's aimed at the protection of that human life growing inside that woman. At the time that the 14th Amendment was adopted, that was 1868, a lot of these laws were in place prohibiting abortion throughout pregnancy, by the way, not after viability, but throughout pregnancy, Three-quarters of the states prohibited abortion throughout pregnancy. And that doesn't mean that in the other ones it was okay. Different states had different degrees of uh, criminality attached to abortion. These same states that were protecting the unborn were ratifying the 14th Amendment. So the logical question arises, how could the same people in the state be passing and upholding laws that protect the unborn from abortion, and at the same time ratifying an amendment that they thought guaranteed a right to abortion. That doesn't make any sense. And indeed, there's no evidence that that indeed was what they were thinking. 
So just as Alito tears apart this idea that somehow there is a constitutional right to an abortion. Now let's deal with an objection right away because Biden, or the Brandon administration, they're already talking this way, as are a number of the other Democrat leaders and, uh, and, and also some, uh, some constitutional experts and commentators are saying, well, wait a minute, the problem here is that if the Supreme Court denies that there's a right to abortion, it denies that the liberty assured to us in the 14th Amendment covers a decision to have an abortion, this could put other rights at risk. And of course, you know, people will say, well, you know, we, we, are, we are free uh, in many other ways, uh, matters of uh, health care and uh, bodily autonomy, marriage and human sexuality, and they start bringing up all these scenarios where this will cause a domino effect and uh, a lot of these other rights will be taken away. But Justice Alito makes a distinction that the court has actually already made. It made it in Roe, it made it in Casey, it made it in a decision that came out a few years after Roe about funding abortion. Why does the state not have to fund what it declares to be legal in abortion? Well, for a very simple reason. Abortion is a unique act. Only abortion, not these other freedoms that we're talking about, but only abortion involves the purposeful termination of life. That makes it unique. That makes it different. That's why you should not be persuaded by the argument that, oh, take away the right to abortion, and all of a sudden you're going to be taking away all these other rights. Which of these other rights involves the purposeful termination of a life? Which one? None of them do. It's a unique act, and therefore it has to be treated uniquely and this is indeed what the court is doing in this opinion that was leaked. People can make policy arguments on both sides of the fence, Justice Alito goes on to say. People who are in support of Roe will make their policy arguments. People who are in support of the right to life as we are will make theirs. That's not even the point, he says. It is a contentious issue. There are people at both sides advocating for their position, and they should be able to advocate for their position. But here's the core of the question, brothers and sisters. Here's the core. The supporters of Roe have to make the case, have to answer the question, why is it the court that has the authority to decide how this matter is going to be regulated in the states? Why is it the court that gets to put up a roadblock to what the people and their elected representatives may want to do in a particular state, as they did in Mississippi, as they have done here in Florida, as they have done in numerous states that have been passing stronger and stronger laws protecting the unborn, just as occurred back in the mid-1800s. Why? Make the case, not why you think abortion should be legal, make the case as to why you think the court should have the final word and tell the states that they cannot protect the unborn even if they want to. 
That's the key here, because the opinion here of Justice Alito that was leaked doesn't make abortion illegal. It says it is up to the legislatures. Now, that's just not just in the states. That's on the federal level, too. Congress has a role. He said it's up to the legislatures, who are accountable by frequent elections to the will of the people. It's up to them to decide what the law will be on abortion. So let them decide. So we say to the people on the other side who are crying out, oh, the court is taking away our right to an abortion. We're saying no such thing. The court is saying to you, make your case. Make your case before the American people. Make the case to your fellow voters. Make the case to your elected lawmakers as to why you think it's a good idea to tear these babies apart. Because if you can persuade them, they can still keep it legal. That's what this decision says. They can still keep it legal. But you see, you can't just hide behind the robes of the judges. That's what a lot of lawmakers are doing. That's what a lot of citizens do. They say, oh, well, it's out of our hands. Nothing we can do. The court took it out of our hands. The court decided that's it. Sorry. Tim is saying uh, California is a sanctuary state. Governor Newsom says free abortions for all. Um, he will pay for the travel tickets, the lodging, the food. Uh, you're, you're bringing up an important point. Because of what this decision says, if this becomes the ultimate decision, uh, of course, states as they are now would be free under the law to pass uh, even more uh, absurd and extreme abortion laws. New Jersey did it recently, Colorado, various other states. But I was out in California speaking to some pro-life groups not too long ago, and you know what I said to them? And I want to say it again now. Not only to you all in California, but to all of you in every state. Whether your state is going to be a sanctuary for abortion, or whether it's going to be a sanctuary for the unborn is not up to the governor. It's up to you. That's the good news here, that we have it in our power to urge, to lobby, to persuade, and to use our vote to see to it that our state is a state that protects life rather than protects the killing of life. Now, the, the decision deals with something called precedent or stare decisis. It's a Latin phrase that means standing by the things that have already been decided. Precedent. Oh, well, the court already ruled on this issue, so let's stick with what it said on this issue. Well, Plessy versus Ferguson said separate but equal. It defended, it upheld as constitutional discrimination, separate but equal, different, different drinking fountains, segregation in schools, etc. It reversed itself on that decision, and thanks be to God that it did, or else we'd still be living under that evil regime. The court changes its mind. The court changes its mind because nobody on the court is infallible, simple reason. We make mistakes. We misjudge things. We find out later that the decision that we passed, that, that we thought was upholding somebody's rights, was actually inflicting damage on them. Separate but equal caused damage to those who were separated equally. So in Brown versus Board of Education, and that was much more than 
more than 50 years later, reversed the Plessy versus Ferguson decision. And in this decision of Justice Alito and in the arguments in this Dobbs case, you see many other examples of how the Supreme Court had to make a mid-course correction, even after decades of precedent. Because stare decisis is not an in, inexorable in, in command. It's not a straitjacket. It's not a dogma. It's not an absolute. The court can change its opinions. And why would the court do that? Well, especially in questions regarding the interpretation of the Constitution, this idea of sticking with the previous decisions has its weakest force when it comes to constitutional questions. Let, let me explain that a little bit. The purpose of stare decisis, the purpose of having this, uh, this rule where you, uh, you stick to a, to a previous decision, is so that there'll be a consistent development and application of the law. Consistent. When it comes to abortion, the development and application has been very inconsistent because the guidance that was given by Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey is confusing to the judges. The justices on the Supreme Court disagree as to what makes an abortion law constitutional or unconstitutional. And the uh, lower courts also have conflicting opinions about this, right up to our day. It in other words, 50 years of this so-called precedent and 30 years of it under, under uh, uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey has not led to any consistency or predictability. The state passes a law tomorrow on abortion. It's unpredictable as to how the court is going to deal with that. Simple example, Planned Parenthood versus Casey comes out with this new standard called undue burden, an abortion law passed by the states or by the Congress for that matter, uh, cannot impose an undue burden or a substantial obstacle in the way of a woman seeking an abortion. Well, define that, please. What's undue? What's a burden? What's substantial? What's necessary? What's unnecessary? What's a benefit? And all these things the justices are juggling around in their minds it's a matter of opinion. It's going to differ from judge to judge, from court to court, from law to law. And so we have a massive confusion going on here. So stare decisis, oh, let's stick with the decisions that we've had for 50 years. Yeah, if those decisions and if the standards articulated in those decisions have led to a consistent and predictable development of law, that's one thing. But in the context of abortion, they haven't. They've led to, to, to confusion. One example, even the ban on partial birth abortion. In the year 2000, the court issued a decision striking down a law in Nebraska that was uh, permitting, uh, well, that was um, protecting babies from partial birth abortion, where the birth process itself is used as a mechanism of killing. And justices who, specifically Justice O'Connor and Justice Souter, who had adopted this undue burden standard in uh, Casey, struck down the law based on the undue burden standard. But based on the same undue burden standard and on his interpretation of it, 
Justice Kennedy upheld the very same law. So here you had the three people who crafted this undue burden standard disagreeing on how it applied. The same thing happened seven years later when the Supreme Court finally upheld the ban on partial birth abortion. So it was a different kind of decision than the one in 2000. They came to a different conclusion about basically the same kind of law. This time they were talking about it on the federal level. And again, the justices disagreed. Souter, I mean, uh, 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 Kennedy and uh, Souter uh, disagreed on how the undue burden test applied in that case. So this is the point I'm making, and this is the point Justice Alito is making and many others, that it's not, it's not leading to consistency and predictability, and therefore there's no reason for us to have to adhere to these past standards and these past uh, opinions. Rather, when it comes, as I already said, to the interpretation of the Constitution, the court has to be especially ready to change its mind. Why? Because when you're talking about the interpretation of the Constitution, there's no escape from that except by a constitutional amendment. And the constitutional amendment process is not easy. It's purposely made very difficult by the founders. You've got to get two-thirds of the House, two-thirds of the Senate, three-quarters of the states to agree. That's a lot of consensus on a particular point. So short of having to amend the Constitution, which isn't going to happen frequently, the court has to be ready to clarify the Constitution and to do what it has to do to make sure the Constitution is not abused. Dennis, I'm not sure what you mean when you say the church needs to stay out of politics. Do you mean that the churches should be silent when human rights are violated? That we should stand with our hands in our pockets and tape over our mouths when human rights are being violated? You don't want us to speak up for human rights? Or do human rights somehow exist uh, independent of politics, you know, the one does not affect the other. Is that what you're trying to say? Because some people in the church seem to act that way. Oh, well, you know, yeah, there's a slaughter of babies going on, but I can't say anything because it's a political matter. Well, what is politics anyway? When you talk about the impact of a court decision on human rights, is that politics? Or are you talking about elections? You're talking about Endorsing a candidate? Or are you talking about explaining an issue? What is it that you mean? Church should stay out. So was that you mean that a church shouldn't take up a collection for a political candidate? We're okay with that. We're not saying the church should become a political party. We're not saying that the church writes the laws. The church doesn't write the laws. The lawmakers do. The church doesn't decide the court decisions. The judges do. But I'm not saying that the church writes the laws, and I'm not saying that the... Oh, see, now now he changes the subject. Now he's talking about the molesting of children. Who's been quiet about that? Me? You're talking about Father Frank Pavone, or you're talking about some other person whose mind I cannot read and whose actions I have nothing to do with. You're talking about people who are being quiet. I'm not being quiet about that. Of course, a lot of them are being quiet about the dismemberment of children. And, of course, my question for you is, are you? 
You're not being quiet about the dismemberment of children and then telling somebody else they're being quiet about the molesting of children. Are you? You have all the answers, don't you? No, you do. In fact, you have the answers before you're even asking the questions. And when people have the answers before they're even asking the questions, be careful, brothers and sisters, because these people are dangerous. Stare decisis falls in this case. You don't hold on to erroneous decisions. You don't hold on to decisions that are completely disconnected from the Constitution. And that's what Justice Alito is saying is the case with Roe and Casey. And then he goes into five factors that should be considered when the court is going to reverse a decision. Let me just mention what these are. First of all, the nature of the error. What kind of, of, of error did the court make? Some errors are more damaging than others. It's hard to imagine one more damaging than taking away the very right to life. The nature of the error. Secondly, how strong, how convincing is the argument? They didn't have Dennis arguing this case, believe me, because they want some strong arguments, but they didn't get them. Dennis might, have, might, might as well have argued this case because the arguments are so weak in, in Roe v. Wade and in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. So they look at that. Thirdly, the workability. And I kind of referred to this already. When you have the court setting a standard for how you review certain laws on certain topics, and then the other courts come to all sorts of contradictory conclusions, it's not workable. If a judge ends up, he has in his hand the decision of the court, and he still doesn't know what to do about the law that he's uh, uh, evaluating, it's not workable. Fourth reason, what kind of disruption does the decision cause in other areas of the law? And finally, something called reliance. Have people come to rely on the decision that was made? So, we don't have time to go into each of these points in detail, but let me just highlight a few thoughts. Uh, first of all, again, this undue burden standard that Planned Parenthood versus Casey uh, put forward as a way of evaluating the constitutionality of a particular law on abortion is, as uh, some of the justices have said, standardless and plucked from nowhere. It's nowhere in our, in our uh, past history. It was unheard of until that point in 1992. And it is certainly not in the Constitution. Now, the weakness of the arguments, furthermore, you go back to Roe v. Wade, it had this framework about what could be done by the state relative to abortion. And by the way, let's go back to Dennis for a minute. We're talking about abortion here. We're talking about the killing of a child. And people come up and they talk about their concern for children. You know, Democrats, I don't know if you're a Democrat. You shouldn't be. But the Democrats like to talk about, oh, yeah, gun violence, and oh, well, we've got to stop gun violence. People do violence, not guns. And the people who do violence can use cars and bombs and knives and, and, and all sorts of other things. Oh, the children at the border, the children at the border. We're talking about the killing of children in a systematic way 
permitted by and paid for by the government, allowed under the law, dismemberment, tearing off their arms and legs, I'm just trying to make sense of how you stand up and cry for how children are treated at the border and being victims of gun violence. I'm not saying you shouldn't be disturbed about that. I'm just trying to figure out how it is that you're disturbed about that and not disturbed about the dismemberment, Dennis. Go to lookatabortion.org today and look at it. Of course, if there are any Democrat hairs on your head, if there are any Democrat cells in your body, they're going to explode, okay, when you look at abortion. Hold on one second. This is, this is, this is courtesy of uh, Dennis and company. There it is, folks. There's abortion. Stop molesting these children. Stop molesting these children. Stop being silent about what's happening to these children. Yeah, and people think the Constitution allows that. So Roe v. Wade drew these various lines. They said, for example, that in the first trimester of pregnancy, and by the way, the court threw this out in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, so much for precedent, right? Starry decisive. But in the first trimester of pregnancy, they said, the state cannot interfere with the choice of a woman to have an abortion. Okay, so, so here's the question. What's the rationale for drawing that line at the end of the first trimester of pregnancy. Roe v. Wade draws the line, but it doesn't explain why it draws the line there. Then it draws another line and it says that the state's interest, the state does have an interest, it said, in, in, in protecting life inside uh, the womb. Many people don't realize that. Roe v. Wade never said that the right, in fact, it explicitly said that the right to abortion is not absolute is not absolute. But it drew the line and said that the state's interest in preserving the life of that child is compelling only after the point of, uh, of viability. Why? In other words, we know what it said, but what's the rationale for saying it? The briefs in the case, the laws that the Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton case were, were examining out of Texas and out of Georgia, respectively, they didn't have this framework in place. This framework, these drawing of lines, this policy making, came out of the Supreme Court. That's not their constitutional role. Line drawing is the constitutional role of the legislators. 
the legislators. Um, and Justice Alito makes the point that, uh, you know, why wouldn't? The interest of the state in, in protecting the life in the womb be compelling before that viability point. And why, for that matter, if the woman has an interest in her freedom to be free from a pregnancy, why would that not continue after viability? And, of course, the other side says, well, yes, you know, and we've tried to weigh and balance these things, and the court has come to a, a way of balancing them. We say it's unworkable and unclear, not to mention unjust, but the point is it still doesn't answer the question as to why the courts are supposed to be the ones to do that rather than the elected lawmakers of the people. Friends, those are some of the key arguments I uh, am going to conclude here, but uh, you can read the opinion yourself. Again, it's leaked, it's not official, but it's authentic, and it indicates where the court is going. And I don't think any of these justices, you know, who, who signed on to this already are going to change their minds due to the unethical behavior of a leaker. Maybe Dennis knows who it is. You want to tell us? A leaker who's trying to stir the pot, create public protest, in the hopes of intimidating one or another of the justices. They're not going to be intimidated, as Justice Roberts said in his statement. Let's pray for them and their families and their protection and their perseverance in doing what courts are supposed to do, judge matters according to the Constitution, not some kind of left-wing, destructive, bloodthirsty, anti-God, anti-family, anti-life ideology. Lord, bless your people, bless the court, bless the justices, bless all our viewers today, and bless us as we go forward in your name, putting America first, making America great, and protecting the unborn. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Stay with us, friends, during the course of the day for our different broadcasting. We look forward to coming back to you soon. And uh, SupremeCourtVictory.com is where you can go to learn a whole lot more about this case. Thanks for joining me this morning. Great to be with you. Great way to start the day. And I'll talk to you soon. God bless. This has been the End Abortion Podcast. To learn more, to help end abortion, and to connect with us on social media, visit endabortion.net.